Welcome to the Cosmopolicast, and I'm Monique. We have the absolute pleasure today of introducing and speaking with our distinguished guest, Nicolas Tonsé. Bonjour, Nicolas. Hello, hello, Monique. Hello, hello, everyone. Hello, hello. Hi, Claire. How are you? Uh, bonjour, Monique. Bonjour, bonjour. <laughs> Monsieur Tonsé is a senior French civil servant and the founding president of the Paris-based independent think tank Centre d'études et de réflexion pour l'action politique, the Center for Study and Research for Political Decision. Also an expert and author on foreign policy and security, he's written three official reports to the French government. And, and he is also a guest professor at Sciences in Paris. Now, if you haven't read Monsieur Tonsé's essay that was published in the Cosmopolitan Globalist, you must read it. It is absolutely enlightening. It's entitled French Diplomacy, What Values Shape Our Alliances? And it's part one, and we are awaiting, Claire, part two, right? And this is also our discussion topic for today. To begin, I think that we need to zero in a bit on Macron. Nicolas, in our previous pods, we've often wondered about Macron. Okay, we have big questions okay, about him. He, it's baffling. His foreign policy is baffling to us. We just don't understand what Macron is trying to achieve. So let's start off with this, okay? And then we can go into all sorts of other areas of what you've written about. Why is Macron alienating the rest of Europe in this way? Well, I think it's very, very difficult, in fact, to understand. During his uh, presidential campaign in 2017, Macron used quite often the word en même temps, which means basically at the same time or simultaneously, meaning by that, that we have need to be at the same time free market oriented and interventionist. We have to reconcile the left and the right. Uh, we have certainly to defend the human rights principles and ID, but we have to engage a conversation with the authoritarian powers, uh, namely Russia and, and, uh, and Syria, etc. So it was, I think, one of the first points that he was advocating for. We have really to disturb and certainly to break down the common political narratives. And of course, this idea also applied to foreign policy. It means that, for instance, we have certainly to stand for Europe. And you know that Europe was one of the key points, you know, in his rhetoric during his campaign and, of course, uh, during also his mandate. And we have to try to really assert what he called the strategic autonomy of Europe. It means Europe has to decide on its own and no one has to dictate the principles or the alliances that Europe must comply with. And that's why he said we have certainly to define our own principles. We must not align with the US. Of course, we cannot accept to align, of course, with Russia and China, and we have to find a kind of so neo-Gaulist middle way. And that's why it was very disturbing, because also at the same time, en même temps, he said, well, certainly, and that's what when, when he met with Putin the first time, you know, in uh, Versailles Castle, you know, uh, 
two weeks after the beginning of his mandate, saying, of course, there are some things that we cannot accept from Russia. He was blaming the propaganda outlets, Russia Today and Sputnik, notably, and he said these are not true journals, but basically it's propaganda tools. But we have to discuss with Russia because on some point he said, well, we could find some common ground. Which one? We don't know. And so he launched the idea that we must build a new architectures of security and trust. And the word trust is quite astonishing, I must say, because who can we trust? How can I you think trust basically, Russia or China? No. How can we trust Russia? And I think it was really completely misleading because basically I think that he had absolutely not analyzed the very nature of Putin's powers. That's not about Russia. And there is still a kind of romantic narrative on Russia, you know, it's a great contra with, you know, we have Tchaikovsky, we have Tolstoy, we have uh, Catherine the Great, a big history, and uh, uh, Russia is Europe. And But that's not, of course, the very nature of uh, Putin's regime. And I think that he was, at least at the beginning of his mandate, underestimating this nature and the fact that uh, there is a criminal nature as Catherine Bolton, Belton rightly pointed out in her wonderful book, Putin's People, yeah, the yes. very nature, the criminal nature of, of Putin regime and the alliance with uh, organized crime. Also, it was very difficult for him, and that was not understandable, even if he blamed Russia so recently for the poisoning of Navalny, for the repression, for what Russia did in Ukraine. And it's absolutely not a question, I must say, to, for instance, to lift sanctions against Russia. And I think he was very tough in his work. But at the same time, at the same time, always, we, he considers that we have to engage with Russia to find something. And in fact, as Florence Parly, the, the Minister of Defense, rightly pointed out some months ago, basically, there was absolutely no result. And on the contrary, we weakened, I think, the position of France and the position of Europe. Of Europe. May I ask, Florence Parly is a no-nonsense experienced woman. And Macron began his time in office fending off Russian aggression in the form of an information operation against him during the last days of the election. Who is advising him? Who is mm. telling him mm. that the evidence before his eyes isn't what it looks like? Where is he getting this idea that there is, there is some kind of understanding, some kind of rapprochement, entente that can be achieved with Putin's Russia? Because certainly he has not had that experience and Parli certainly isn't telling him this. Where is he getting that idea? I think that's a very, very difficult to say. Of course, you have a lot of people saying that, of course, he discussed quite often with uh, the former Minister of Foreign Affairs, uh, Hubert Védrine, who is basically uh, an appeaser and has mm -hmm. absolutely no concern for human rights, for the sufferings of the people. And I remember an interview with Védrine in the newspaper Le Monde in France, when he said, we have to accept that we've lost on Syria and we lost on Ukraine, and that's all. And he is a so kind of alleged realist, but in fact he is not. He is really trying just to justify and, as he said, to understand Russia's position. And also we know that Macron also spoke to Nicolas Sarkozy. He spoke also to Philippe de Villiers. He may spoke at the beginning, probably not yet, with Dominique de Villepin, the former prime minister and minister of foreign affairs. And all those peoples are not certainly understanding for one reason or another the very nature of Putin regime. And I was, uh, and so something that I said quite often, even to Macron directly, 
for instance, I was advocating the boycott of the World Cup, you know, in, in 2018, saying, well, you have a country, Russia, that was perpetrating war crimes, notably in Syria. And you know that in Syria, Putin's armed forces killed more Syrian civilians than even ISIS did. And if we want to be serious on the very meaning of war crimes, imprescriptible crimes, I think we cannot smile with Mr. Putin. We cannot shake hands with Mr. Putin. I think it's a, basically a question of consistency vis-a-vis -vis Russia. And also, I think it's a question of the values that we are standing for. If we consider that war crimes are very serious, what do we do with countries like Russia and China too, of course, uh, that are perpetrating those war crimes? And I remember the former chief rabbi of Israel said, uh, Israel Merlo, he was talking about what Assad and Putin did in Syria as a small holocaust. Hmm. And I think that in the all chief rabbi, it's really meaningful. It yes, is. unquestionably. I would think, though, that even if the moral arguments make no impression on him, the political argument would make an impression because the elections, the French elections, as in every democratic country, are under Russian attack. The integrity of the election and his own re-election prospects, certainly this makes an impression, no? Absolutely. And that's why, you know, it's really not understandable. And of course, I am not saying that Macron is weak on Russia in his stance, mm -hmm. but I think that he really doesn't understand. And that's true, they were the Macron League, you know, during the, his mm -hmm. own election. Exactly. But that's also a question of security. That's also a question of security, not only Ukraine security, Georgia's security, Belarus security, but it's a question of the own, own security. And uh, exactly. of course, Macron is not only the only one, you know, uh, that what can discuss the policy. And also, you know, you had the other leaders, of course, in France, in Germany, in Italy, uh, you know, in Spain, uh, in the Netherlands, and etc. And uh, we did not pay attention to what Russia was doing. And there was a lot of people, including myself, who rang the alarm bell as early as 2008 or even before, you know, in 2000 with the Second Chechnya War. We have to pay attention to what Russia is doing. And finally, you know, at the end of the day, no one really took action. That's not the, of course, it was good to have the sanction in 2014 after the, the annexation of Crimea and the invasion of Donbass. Okay, so that's good, but certainly not enough. Certainly hmm. not enough. And I think that it's quite difficult to figure out, in fact, Emmanuel Macron is trying to do with this kind of reset with uh, Russia. And of course, since, you know, the, the Navalny poisoning, I think that, in fact, that doesn't exist anymore. It, even if there are some, some group, if you have the, the special envoy on Russia, Pierre Vimont, trying still to have a channel of conversation. And I'm not saying that we must not have this kind of channel of conversation. Of course, we must, for many reasons. And also the U.S. has but I think that just to advocate this idea of an engagement with Russia is basically undermining the cohesiveness of Europe. And I, I had a lot of discussion with a lot of European ministers from other countries, not only, I mean, the Central and Eastern European countries, but also some of the Nordic countries. I mean, well, I think that really Macron, and it was maybe a little bit exaggerated, is putting Europe in danger. That I don't think that's an exaggeration. I think that's true. Perhaps the degree of danger can be debated. But 
one thing just occurred to me as you were speaking, I was thinking that the reaction to the pandemic and the reaction to the threat that Russia poses to Europe's integrity and democratic stability have both been too weak, curiously lacking in attention to what's happening in other countries, and insufficiently decisive, active. Mm. Decisive and active. And I wonder whether there is something about the structure of his government or the mm. advisory committees around him that is leading to this. Yes, of course, that's a question. That's a question. I have maybe some answers, but some insider answers too. And I think that he was not probably listening always to the right people, because you have a lot of people at the, you know, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs who are basically thinking, as I am, as I do, that you know we we have certainly to pay more attention. And just I remember that it was even during the Hollande uh, mandate. I proposed to the Elysee and the Ministry of Foreign Affairs to create a kind of uh, small cell just observing Russia's propaganda. And finally, uh, everyone found the idea excellent, but because of bureaucratic uh, reluctances or, I will say, kind of mismatch, no, nothing in fact happened. And I, and I think we are still here. We are not, I think, diverting enough means you know, uh, when it comes to domestic intelligence, to pay attention to the way Russian propaganda is doing. And uh, something which is, in my view, very key, but not only for France, you, you have a lot of people basically advocating Russia's positions in websites, in journals, think tanks, etc. And there is absolutely no transparency on the fundings. Of course, I cannot name and blame someone specifically uh, that I cannot do, obviously. But when we are working, you know, on these kind of things, I think it's quite easy to find the links. And I think that's why, you know, I am advocating in many of my pieces about we have must have new law, just to be sure that there is a clear link, clear, you know, understanding of where money is coming from. Also for the think tanks, also for the journalists, also for the people who are consultants, including some very prominent people. You have a very prominent people who may have access to the president, to some MPs or to many ministers who are on the payroll mm -hmm. of uh, foreign companies. Yes. I wonder um, if I could ask a very simple question. The, the true issue is that's legal. It could be perfectly legal. legal. Yeah. May but, I ask but I think there must be some new laws because I think when, that when you have someone who is receiving money mm. for a Chinese or Russia or Azeris or Turkish company, and then mm -hmm. talking to the president, talking to the minister, talking to MPs. Of course, there is a kind of confusion. And I think there must be a transparency. There must be transparency on yes, that. Yes, Nicola. I thought that for readers and listeners who don't know much about France, it would be good to have a simple explanation of how French policy is made. What are the analog structures to the NSC, for example? Who are the key decision makers? I'd just like to explain who people should look at if they're trying to figure out who's making French policy, who's important, what structures are important. When it comes to foreign policy, my answer is very clearly the president, the president, and the president. That's the way it seems. Exactly. And That's it, it means that I'm not saying, of course, that the the Ministry of Foreign Affairs on the Minister Jean-Yves Le Drian or the, the Minister of Defense Florence Parly do not have a say. Of course, you know, on a daily basis, they are preparing a lot of notes 
of arguments sent to the president. But then you don't have, you were mentioning, Claire, you were mentioning the NSC. We don't have something like a very big structures as the NSC in the US. We have a diplomatic cell to the president. We have a Sherpa and diplomatic advisor and then deputy diplomatic advisor and some advisors, you know, specialized in some fields. But we don't have as many people as we have in the, in the NSC. And the true issue is the questions of the flows of information and the flows of recommendation coming, of course, from the Gedorsay or the Minister of Defense to the president. And then, of course, it's completely reanalyzed, retreated by the diplomatic cell to the president. And as we said before, also, of course, the president could speak to many people from uh, informally. And of course, some of his informations and advisors are coming uh, from other people. I will just give you an example on foreign policy and then coming back to the, the question of the National Assembly and Senate. When uh, Macron met Putin, you know, in Brégançon, Macron has a very strange sentence. He was talking about uh, Europe from Lisbon to Vladivostok. And I think no one with the exception of myself, maybe, noted the very origin of this sentence. Oh, yes, we did. The sentence (laughs) has been framed by the nationalist and anti-Semitic guru Alexander Dugin. And you had also a piece uh, written or signed, at least by Putin himself, in 2010, in Deutsche Zeitung, a German newspaper, mm-hmm. entitled Europe from Lisbon zum Vladivostok. Well, this is precisely why I became yeah. interested in your writing. Because uh, my, my question is, my question is, of course, I think that, of course, Macron was absolutely not aware. So it's not a reproach to Macron. And there's uh, a very uh, obvious uh, question. Where, you know, the sentence was coming from. Who put, you know, this Exactly, exactly. And what doesn't wish to sound like James Jesus Angleton, but this suggests a penetration close to Macron. It Mm. does. For me, that was a a true question. And of course, it was a very big sign, you know. I mean, of course, the the, the general public was not noticing that. Even if you have some specialists on Russia who are not maybe working very closely on that. But I, I was at the same time, you know, reading a very great book by Timothy Schneider, mm. uh, The Road to Unfreedom. Unfreedom. And yeah. it was very interesting because in his book, Schneider was analyzing, you know, this sentence and saying what was behind, I mean, basically the Eurasianist perspective, the, the great Russia, etc., etc. So it was very interesting and very telling, in my view, on, you know, some influences. Then coming back to your question, Claire, of course, when it comes to foreign policy, you may have some debate in the National Assembly or in the Senate. And you have, of course, certainly some people, you know, in the Senate and National Assembly uh, influenced by Putin or by China or by uh, Azerbaijan or Turkey, etc. Certainly we have. But in fact, they are not a motor. They are not, you know, key element in the foreign policy decision-making process. I'm talking about, you know, the National Assembly and Senate. It's absolutely not the equivalent of the U.S. Congress. Okay. Absolutely not. Let me, let me ask another question. I'm an institutionalist, and I think what you're saying is extremely important for people to understand, that there are no institutions here. Yes. Not that long ago, we saw 
a horrific terrorist attack in the heart of the prefecture of the police, right in the middle of the city, four police officers killed by what was obviously an internal penetration by ISIS. What we're saying makes me think that France has a counterintelligence problem, that sufficient resources are not going to counterintelligence. Who would be responsible for looking at this holistically and saying, we have a counterintelligence problem and we need to devote more resources to this? Yes, I, I think we, we certainly have to. Of course, I am not a specialist for, on counterterrorism, uh, certainly, but certainly we have an issue. I am not saying that the other countries are not, and I think that's uh, the idea of zero failure, I think uh, probably uh, cannot really hold in this kind of matter. But I think there is a, certainly an issue. There is an issue, even if you have no a coordinator. And that was something that I was advising for in one of my reports for the prime minister in 2002. And we were proposing, of course, to, to create a position of national coordinator. And after a report, it was done. Okay, but the, then the question, and there are, of course, a lot of things that we cannot be aware of. There is another story also, and I think that rightly so. In fact, France is devoting a lot of means to fight against Islamic uh, terrorism, and also rightly so. But yeah. maybe maybe it could have, of course, also an impact because you don't have uh, infinite resources and human resources or to counter, uh, you know, Russia's propaganda, China's propaganda, uh, Russia's cyber attacks and this kind of thing. And Perhaps the, the efforts should actually reinforce each other if there is a counterintelligence center that is looking at unusual amounts of money going into accounts of public servants or and training people in responding to efforts to penetrate various security services, they should reinforce each other. So I'm, I'm wondering which institutions need reinforcement to make French foreign policy serve France? Well, I, I think just first of all, there must be a political decision. There mm-hmm. must be very clear guidelines about mm-hmm. that. And especially about, you know, when it comes to track the money. There must be certainly more guidelines given by the government. Then, basically, you you have a coordinator. And you have, you know, in Bercy, I mean, in the Ministry of Finance, you have a cell since a long time, which name is uh, TRACFIN, basically uh, tracking the financial flows that may come from uh, very dubious sources. And this uh, entity, with also the General Directorate of Public Finances, the domestic and external intelligence uh, services is doing a great job when it comes to Islamic terrorism. But uh, I think uh, it's certainly not enough. And again, when, I, when I'm talking about, you know, some money uh, going not only to public servants, but uh, mostly, I think, to private people by law, we have, I think, to change the law. And I think that the law is okay when it comes to, to dark money, uh, terrorist money, and this kind of thing. We, we have all the tools and yeah. uh, and the banks, uh, I know, I'm, I'm talking with a lot of CEOs of banks, are perfectly aware they have very strict guidelines on that. But when you have, I mean, a very senior consultant receiving money from, let's say, a Chinese or Russian mm-hmm. and, uh, company or Turkish company, of course, those companies may have very strong link with the government. And when you know how you know the people are financed, it's not directly by the Kremlin or by the foreign ministry. Of course, exactly. And exactly. that's, a, that's an issue. That's, I think, I think, for me, when it comes to all issues, not, I mean, I'm not talking about Islamic terrorism, but about all issues, I think that's the key point. I, I agree that it's very important. And the other thing I would, I would ask about, I don't know if this is the case, it's been widely reported that the CIA has a new chief of station in Paris. And I think you could safely say the CIA is 
a big grudge with Putin at this point and would probably be a very good source of institutional knowledge about what Russia is doing in Europe. And I wonder if Macron's attitude, wanting to be independent of the United States, would prevent a good liaison relationship, a good level of cooperation occurring among the intelligence services. What do you think? Yes, from what I know, from what I know, of course, uh, you know, it's very difficult to assess because all those kind of things are completely not disclosed. Yeah, no one Um, talks to us about it. But still, I I know for sure that there are very good relations between the CIA and the French intelligence. And we have also very good relationship between the French military and the US military. I think there is a very close very close cooperation, you know, in the field. The question is how, you know, all the information, especially about Russia, are transmitted or transferred uh, to the president and what the president is doing with that. So I think there is no real, I mean, no real damage. Here's another question. I mean, was Macron looking at Trump and saying, obviously, the American president is completely compromised by Russia? There is no point in getting Mm. on the wrong side of Russia when Trump is in office because he is as good as completely bought and sold. Might there be new opportunities now with Trump out of office for cooperation Mm. between France and the United States to be serious about Russia? Is that possible? Yes, I think it's possible. But I think we have probably to acknowledge it more publicly. And I think that I, I was a little bit astonished By the way, the election of Joe Biden was received by some uh, people in France, you know, some of the the public authorities and also Mm. some uh, journalists. I think for for me, it was really great news. It was great news, but it it was a kind of a new opportunity. And I think it was a little bit cold. Mm. Do you think it's because there is so much enthusiasm for the idea of a Europe that has its own independent destiny? Or is it because Mm. people were looking at the results of the election and saying 75 million Americans voted for Trump? We can only, this is only a four-year reprieve. America's obviously gone Mm. absolutely insane in a long-term way. Yes, I think that there was was a mixed, I think. First of all, nowadays we have a very strong U.S. administration. We have an absolutely smart one. But we have people, and it was expressed by someone that I I know, it is... In a way, you know, not I wouldn't say more difficult to work with the Biden's administration than it was with Trump's because it was obviously chaos. But now we have people, you know, in the U.S. administrations who know where they are heading to. They have ideas, they have convictions, and in a way, they are less flexible. And I think it's probably more difficult for France and maybe some or Germany too, to have a kind of say because we have a very smart US administration right now. You mean the Trump administration is more easily manipulated? In a way, in a way. Of course, it was very difficult to achieve anything because sometimes we could have good discussion with some of the Trump's people. And then at the end of the day, you know, Trump decides, you know, another way. And there was absolutely no, 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 no real confidence. But we had, in a way, some more margin of maneuvers. That was expressed by some people. But right. with Biden's administration, again, they, they know where they are going to. They have a project. They have a plan. And I know that for some people, and they express, that's certainly not my own opinion, but some people express the idea that, well, it could be, in a way, uh, more frustrating because of the quality of the team with Blinken, Jake Sullivan, mm-hmm. and others. 
Is there any specific issue that's on people's minds in this respect? Well, when it comes to, to Russia and China, I think that's the main point. And I think that, of course, we'll see what happens you know, in the next coming months. But we have a very clear, tough attitude from the Trump's administration regarding uh, Beijing and Moscow. Right. Uh, when Europe says, well, we still have to find another position, we have to find a middle way, we certainly have to discuss with both, then I think it will be very difficult to find, the, uh, let's say, the terms of reference. To be specific, the trade deal, which I don't think has any chance of being approved by the European Parliament, but the major trade deal that Merkel and Macron negotiated with China just and announced just after Biden's election. I thought this was stupid. I thought, wait until Biden has taken office and discuss this with him. I didn't understand why the why there was a hurry. But what is the thinking in France about that? Is that supposed to be an example of the middle way that France wishes to negotiate? Yes, probably it was. And it was but it was it was, I must say, mostly a German idea. Because, yeah. You know, we have exactly the same discussion with Nord Stream 2, because in fact, you know, since uh, since many years, Macron is absolutely not in favor of Nord Stream 2 also, for mm. instance. Mm. But he doesn't want just to confront Angela Merkel on not, this kind Not now, ask. when he needs Germany to sign on on the euro bonds. He's, he's in a very difficult position because he really needs mm. German cooperation on Europe. Exactly. And that's why, that's why, you know, he was not publicly opposing, you know, for instance, Nord Stream 2. So, well, it's a German affair. We mm. won't intervene. Even if uh, before mm. Clément Beaune, uh, junior minister for European Affairs, said exactly the contrary. You, you have some, I wouldn't say tensions, but you may have uh, differences of perception within, I mean, the, the French government. And you have some people, including Clément Beaune and uh, probably uh, Jean-Yves Le Drian also, who certainly uh, want to have a tough stance vis-à-vis uh, -vis Russia. I, I don't see Jean-Yves Jean Le Drian as a pushover there. Uh, mm. Perhaps Clément Bonne, but, but not but Le Drian. He, He's, he knows what's going on. Yes, exactly. And I think those people know perfectly uh, what's going on. And no, I think it's quite difficult to assess where uh, Emmanuel Macron uh, stands now uh, when it comes to Russia, because mm. uh, all his hopes, in, fa in fact, were completely showered. And I think he has a clear perception that right now that uh, it's really difficult to find a kind of common ground with Russia on anything, you know, on Syria, on Ukraine, even on, on, on security uh, uh, I mean, uh, negotiation, let's say, new start treaty and this kind of thing. I think it's very, very difficult. It must be quite psychologically difficult for him right now because the election is coming up and he has already been forced to concede in, in effect that he has made a number of bad decisions on the pandemic to actually say, I've also made some bad decisions with respect to Russia and we have to rethink this policy would make him look weak and he can't afford that now. Probably you're right. And I think, and I hope that if he is reelected, probably he could have then a kind of U-turn after his re-election. Just a, a domestic <coughs> political question. Do you think that there is any hope of another candidate or is it going to come down to Macron versus, versus Le Pen again, giving the French voters absolutely no real democratic choice? Well, it's very, very difficult to say because basically I think everything could happen. That's something that I am uh, warning against since uh, many years, unfortunately so. And uh, it will be, of course, uh, completely horrendous. But Marine Le Pen may be elected. Well, she's mm. certainly blackmailing the entire country with the prospect. 
Yes, and I, and I think that, uh, you know, the, the, the issue is that I cannot see right now another candidate than uh, Macron or, or Le Pen who can win. And neither can I, and this is a terrible no, situation. No way from the, from the, I mean, the conservative Republicans or from the left, I don't see anyone. Effectively, France has been deprived of its democracy by Le Pen, by, by the threat of a Le Pen government. Hmm. No one yes. will take the risk. Mm-hmm. Yes, I think it's a major risk, and uh, we cannot, we must not undermine. I think this or minimize. I think uh, this risk. This risk is uh, no, it's real. Uh, it's true mm-hmm. because I think that we still have, and of course, it's, it's favored by Putin and all the authoritarian regime, uh, obviously. But I think that part of the left and also part of the right do not really realize and understand what it would mean. It would mean for the French government, for the, the, the sanity of the public debate but what it will mean also for uh, the image of France abroad. I don't quite see how people could fail to understand this because they have, they have been watching what it's meant for the United States for four years and the insanity that it's produced and the way we will never again recover our reputation as a sane country. And we have Italy to the south of France where we've got Salvini and we've got Meloni. We're, we're, we're encountering the exact same problem. And they're polling close to 50, if not more than 50%. I think there's perhaps a problem of provincialism in every country where relevant lessons of other countries are not being learned. And that's in part why we exist. No, I, I think that the, the average voters, you know, in France or in Italy or in Germany or in the US or mm-hmm. uh, anywhere else do not have, I think, a clear understanding of this. And they don't have also the memory of the past. They don't have any kind of, uh, let's say, a kind of historical consciousness. Exactly. It is remarkable to the degree to which the 20th century, which was supposed to never be forgotten, has been forgotten. Mm -hmm. It's generational, is it not? Because we've got one of the first generations, if not the first generation, that has never been subjected to war or deprivation or anything like that. So they don't even understand what it means. Absolutely. And it's very, very, it was very, very frightening, you know, there was, a, there was an opinion survey in France uh, last week that shows that the young people between 18 and 29 or 34 are the ones who are more favoring Marine Le Pen right now. And what does it mean? What, I think it's, it speaks volumes about, you know, the, 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 the failures of our educational system. Hmm. It may also speak volumes about the failures of Macron's administration to deliver what he promised to deliver and mishandling the pandemic in a very serious way. The problem is that there is not not another candidate. And this this is where French democracy seems to me to be in a very, very dangerous situation because Mm. the political parties have collapsed and the normal processes by which two candidates, two acceptable candidates emerge have been interrupted. And so Macron, who's not been a particularly successful figure, going to be up against Le Pen, who is a guaranteed disaster for France. Mm-hmm. And you're yes. right, she could win. So mm-hmm. I, I'm concerned, and I think you're right to be. Uh, Nicolas, the same statistic, for example, this was, I think, during the elections in the States. They had done some polling with young people in high school, and the numbers were shocking of how many people, I think only 30% or 36%, I'd have to check the actual thing, but that didn't even know about the Holocaust. 
This was yeah. shocking to me. We, it was like a, we had not exactly the same figures in France, but we had we have some of the students. I don't have you know the the, mm-hmm. the number in mind. Also, do not know about the Holocaust. They don't have the perception of what happened. And uh, I think that's also a true issue that I was pointing out. You know, in a book as early as 1989 on education, there is a true abandonment. I mean, in the educational systems of the disciplines that are forging the historical consciousness and the freedom of thought, namely history, literature, philosophy. For instance, most of the children, you know, in school do not write essays. They are not compelled to read an entire book, just excerpts of the books. And this kind of thing. And I think the the, the course of history are also very weak. Okay. And has consequences of the public spirit. And I think that we can blame, um, I think, quite all the governments on that, both from the left and from the right. Because we have, I think, two stances, basically. The one from the right saying, well, we have to adapt the educational systems to the requirements of the companies. We have to create workers. Could be senior workers or average workers. It could be uh, senior management. Okay, but we need technical skills. And we have, must have people, or I mean children, ready to enter companies to be efficient. And then you have from the left another stance, which is the main purpose is equality. Not only, I mean, as a result, as an outcome, but as a method. And then you put in the same schools, everyone, and they have exactly to have the same curriculums, the kind thing things of graduation, everyone must have the what we call the baccalaureate, which is the high school diploma. So basically the requirement, of course, plummeted. And I think that's a true issue. We certainly have to differentiate. And I think for everyone, even for the average workers, we have certainly to teach them history and also philosophy and literature, etc. But we must have, of course, different kind of curriculum. We have to adapt that. And so basically, I think it was completely misleading, both from the right and from the left, to really uh, sacrifice the main disciplines that are forging the critical south. I, I have to agree, and I wouldn't have agreed until recently, but to see the power of the anti-vaccination movement in France is to realize there's something wrong with the educational system, with reasoning facilities, people who can't understand statistics, the scientific method, can't understand the importance of double-blind placebo-controlled trials. There's a basic education problem if you have 30 or 40 percent of the population opposed to the most important public health innovation in the past century, and vaccination is that. So I I think there's there's something that's gone wrong with the educational system here, Mm. as, as it has gone wrong in the United States. And there are many reasons for that, but education is definitely something that no, anyone who's is... concerned with the future of liberal democracy has to yeah, be thinking about. To... Absolutely, and I fully agree with you, Claire. And I think I have, of course, to put science. And I think so, I was talking about critical thinking, and I was talking about literature, philosophy, and history. But I think that, of course, science, so mathematics, physics, natural sciences are part of the of the curriculum. 
And I think that's the anti-science movements uh, that we mm. perceived with the anti-vaccines, with a lot of conspiracy theories. You know, it's really frightening because really people do not know how to think. They do not know how to find the right information. They do not know uh, what we can do, what we have to accept as a valid information and what we have to reject. They don't have any criterion to see mm. and to, to differentiate what is lie and what is truth. Mm. Yes, uh, an adjacent issue is the epistemic fragmentation of the modern world, and this is in large part a technological issue, it's the rise of the internet, but there needs to be compensating education which helps people to figure out what in this huge swirling cloud of information is worth paying attention to and what isn't. I don't think people are getting those tools. And this is a new problem for every society. This is the first generation Absolutely. raised mm -hmm. in this technological environment, but we have to figure it out or we're not going to be around for much longer. Yeah. Accompanying all of this, there's also something that has been going on for quite a while, which I don't know, Nicola, whether you agree or Claire, this idea that there's also been a collapse of values. I don't know whether it's because there's been a collapse in the education system or not. I don't know. I look at the way that European foreign policy isn't conducted, right? So at home, we've got the idea that we need to be good citizens, honest. And then we see foreign policy where Macron and here in Italy, it's happened as well, but also with Merkel and, and Germany are putting those liberal values aside and they're working with doing business with Russia, and they're doing business with China, putting aside all of the liberal values. There's also this, I think, there's this disconnect between what we preach and then what we actually do. And young kids see this. They're not stupid. They actually observe and they say, well, you know, what, what is going on? No, I think it's absolutely pivotal. It's absolutely perfect. I think it's completely central. And I think that too, I think you, you were pointing out something which is absolutely vital. And that was also something that I was since long advocating for, which is we have really to name and shame. We have to call a spade a spade. And I am always referring to Syria, because Syria for me is the worst tragedy of the 21st century. And not just for you, it is objectively the worst tragedy of the 21st century. Yes, absolutely. And absolutely. And the thing with uh, about 1 million people killed with crimes against humanity perpetrated by the Assad regime, war crimes perpetrated by Russia and Iran, for some things that we have to condemn. And if we see, you know, the state of the public opinion, and if you see the state of the public discourse, I think no one is aware of. You have a small elite maybe that is aware of what happened in Syria. Yeah. I mean, the people who are reading in France, Le Monde or Libération and, and some others. But who can we accept that someone destroys a country, killed one million people without any consequences? And I think that in terms of values, in terms of public spirit, public mind, public consciousness, they would normally, I think in a normal society, in a civilized, civilized society, there will must be an outrage. And there must have been a lot of claims, demonstration of people asking for interventions, asking for, for the allies to put an end to this bloodbath. 
and nothing happened. And I think that's a responsibility of the politicians, basically. Because I think that on this kind of thing and the fight for values that uh, you were mentioning, Monique, I think that certainly the politicians and especially the president or the German chancellor or the prime minister, etc., they have to take the lead. Yes. And they have in a way to advertise, they have to speak to the public, yeah. to speak out. They have to tell to the public opinion what happened. And the silence was obscuring the crimes committed in Syria. How can people be unaware that people fleeing Syria? There was a crisis, a refugee crisis that destabilized all of Europe. Do you really think no one asked why are these refugees arriving? What's compelling them to flee? It was good for Merkel. I think that I am very critical of Merkel on Nord Stream 2, the relationship with Russia and this kind of thing, the appeasement thing, etc. But I think that Merkel was the schaffen das, uh, as she said, yes. I think, welcoming, I think, one million or plus Syrian refugees to Germany. I think that was a very, very good thing. Because I think that at that time, she was really uh, the leader of the free world on this issue. And I was always praising Merkel for doing that. But that didn't happen in France. And I think if we ask the public, no one is aware of that. Basically, I think that uh, average people do not know what no. is, legally speaking, a refugee. A refugee. And it's don't... someone who fled a regime. On they don't understand that their own countries are signatories to these instruments and have been for many years. Exactly. And I think that's also a question of the public consciousness. And I think that's why, you know, I am also afraid that no one in our democracies, I think exactly the same in the US and others, do not pay really a great deal of attention to, uh, I think, these very notions that are really the framework of the liberal democracies. I am worried about exactly the same things. I find it shocking to think that the average person might be unaware of what has happened in Syria. It is perhaps more comforting to think they don't know than to think they don't know and don't care. I have suspected it's the latter, not the former. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, they don't and care. That's a huge, again, that's a huge responsibility of the politicians and of the leaders of the world. Thank you so much for, for thank coming. Thank you. Thank you again. Nice. Thank you so much to, to everyone. And uh, Perfect. Thank you so much. We really appreciate it. No, my, my pleasure. Thank you so much to you. Okay, see you soon. Goodbye. I hope so. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.